My name is Josh Pollard. I'm the adult ministries pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, Today, we're going to be landing the plane, wrapping things up on our study of Romans 8, where we've been talking about how God never fails. Uh, So if you'd pray with me before we jump into it here. Uh, Father, we thank you for today. Uh, We come here to hear your word, and we come here to meet you and praise you and encounter you. Uh, We believe in you. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we, uh, we ask for you to move in here today, uh, that you would preach your word to our hearts, that you'd be merciful and graceful to me as I try and do this, as I try and speak, uh, and that at the end, nothing but your truth would stand and everything else would be as if it never happened. Uh, we praise your name, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, Romans chapter 8, God never fails. Have you ever noticed, because I've noticed, that we hate when things fail? Right? Especially when things fail to last, because then I feel like you've got your thing, but it just doesn't last. And we hate that as people. Uh, the American insurance industry is actually a $1.3 trillion annual industry built completely off of our hatred or our fear or at least our knowledge that things don't last. $1.3 trillion each year go into this. And that's everything from your homeowner's insurance to your renter's insurance, your, auto, your automobile insurance, your snowmobile insurance, I guess, here in Minnesota. Um, everything, health insurance, all goes into that. And I swear it's getting out of hand. The other day, I bought a new toaster for the cafe. They sold me, they tried to sell me product protection insurance in case my toaster breaks. And if I, got, if I need toaster insurance, then I have bigger problems than a broken toaster. I can tell you that much. Instead, I think it's only a matter of time before Culver's comes out with burger protection insurance in case you drop it on the way to your table because they're going to make a fortune off Pastor David. I already know it. Because you know he's not going to drop his burger. He loves it too much. All right. So what we're talking about today with God never failing, one of the effects of that is that God's work to save us, his saving work, never fails to last. We don't need salvation insurance. Uh, So if everyone can open your Bibles to Romans 8, that's where we're going to be today. And what's cool is that everybody in this room owns a Bible. Either you brought one or you now own that Bible under the chair in front of you. So take it with you. We actually give a bunch of Bibles away every week. People take a whole bunch of them. So go ahead and use that one. Take it with you. We're going to be on page 772 today. And uh, if you, maybe you own a Bible, but you know someone else that needs one, take that one and give it to them. All right, we're going to be on page 772. And today's section, we're going to start in verse 31. Uh, But before we get there, I want to remind you about what we talked about last week in verses 28 to 30, when Pastor David spoke. Uh, It says, what what we learned there, what we saw there was that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Uh, And we learned that the good that he's working all of these things toward is that he's going to do whatever it takes to make us more and more like his son, because that is the ultimate good. Not our comfort or our preferences or things like that, but to be like Christ. That is the ultimate good for us. That is what God is going to work all things together toward for us, for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And so that's what we pick up today. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 8, so look for the big 8, verse 31. Look for the little 31. It's in the bottom right corner if you're using our Bibles on page 772. And it says this, Paul says, What then shall we say in response to these things? 
And so when he says these things, he's referring to everything he's talked about in the book of Romans, and specifically Romans 8, and it's specifically, specifically, verses 28 to 30 that we talked about last week. What do we say in response to all of that? And Paul's answer for us is that if God is for us, who can be against us? It's a very famous verse, a very just an awesome verse, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? And I, we use it all the time to kind of encourage us in daily challenges. It sounds a lot like uh, Psalm 27 in the Old Testament. Psalm 27 says this. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it's my enemies and my foes. Who will stumble and fall? Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be comforted. And all of that is true. That's an amazing truth. Nothing is stronger than God. You have no enemies, no circumstance that is bigger and stronger than God. So take heart and be brave. And of course, some people, sometimes we use this verse inappropriately. We misuse it as a way to support our preferences or our desires or even our sports teams, right? If God is for Tim Tebow, who can be against Tim Tebow? That would be a misuse of this verse. So let's not make that mistake. The Bible's not saying that no one will ever give us grief or hurt us or nothing bad will ever happen when it says this verse. What it's saying, uh, well, if you look at verse 27... King David even wrote that about all the people that were against him, that were trying to literally murder him. You see, in the Old Testament, when Israel would turn its back on God's law and be unfaithful and want to go serve other gods, God would say, okay, yeah, go ahead. Go serve them. See if they protect you. And he would hand them over into the hands of their enemies, into these other empires, and terrible things would happen. It was not a good thing. Bad, bad things would happen to them during this time. And we have to remember that those other empires that were conquering Israel were not the judges of Israel's sin. God was the judge, and they were just the tool of his judgment upon their sin. So the point is not that no one will ever give us any grief or no one will ever be against us. The point is that it's only God's judgment that matters. And so if they are against us, it doesn't matter if we're in God's will. And the flip side is true too. If God is against us, who shall be for us? It doesn't matter because it's only God's judgment that matters. That is the point here. So we get to Romans 8. It's not just about facing our challenges in daily life and situations here on earth. It's about facing an even bigger challenge, a bigger challenge, and that is our sin. That's what it's facing. So when it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's saying, if God has chosen us, called us, justified us, and glorified us himself, why would he send anyone against us in judgment? There is nothing left to judge. In fact, at that point, he'd be sending judgment upon his own saving work at that point, which obviously doesn't make sense. Paul goes on in verse 32. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? There's a lot of pronouns in there, so let's clarify. It says, you could also read it like this. 
God the Father did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave Jesus up for us all. How then will God not also, along with his son, Jesus, graciously give us all things? And so what Paul's doing here is actually called arguing from the harder to the easier. It's like saying, we went through all the trouble to build this big building. Wouldn't we pay the electricity bill so we can use it? Of course we would. God has already done the infinitely valuable thing of sending his son to be sacrificed. Wouldn't he do all the easier things to make that sacrifice useful and make it last and not just some worthless thing? Of course he would. And we've got a lot of homeowners and finance people in here. Think of it like this. Would God not protect his investment in the people he saved? Of course he would. You know, something the Bible teaches that I just, I can't get over, I love the tension of this in the scriptures, is that on one hand, we are wretched, vile, worthless sinners, just terrible. And on the other hand, we are the pinnacle of all creation, created in the very image of God himself. And I think this verse shows that. It shows how immensely valuable we are to God. Good? No. Valuable? Yes. Immensely. You see, in any good economics class, they're going to teach you that in a free market, the value of something is whatever who wants it the most is willing to give up for it. Look at this painting. This is a painting. This painting is called Orange, Red, Yellow. This painting is by an American artist uh, named Mark Ruthko. And back in 2012, this painting sold at auction uh, for $86.3 million. And... Uh, if you're unimpressed because, you know, inflation and stuff, 2021, that would be just a hair shy of $100 million, which is awesome, right? Uh, just for comparison, here's another uh, one called Pink, Blue, Yellow by another American artist called My Daughter. And this one I'm selling actually just for about $25 million, So she's got some room to grow if you're interested. Talk to me later. Um, Here's one for all the peasants out there. This one is uh, by another American artist named Target down the road. You can get it for just $45. Now, if you're a normal person, uh, or what the art world would call an uncultured swine, like myself, you are asking, why is this one worth $45? The other one worth just $25 million, give or take. And the other one worth literally $100 million. Like if you backed up a U-Haul full of cash, but it was only $95 million, and you tried to buy that thing, they would say, I am so sorry, but you know, our clearance rack is over there. You should go check out our bargain paintings. Why is that? It's just canvas and paint. Well, the reason that that is worth $100 million is that whoever wanted it the most was willing to give up $100 million to have it. That's the only reason. It's just canvas and paint. Do you think that the person that wanted to give up $100 million for that would just take it home and be like, you know, I should really like take care of this and kind of get it mounted professionally, but that costs like 150 bucks. You know, just put it in the garage for now. No, of course not. Of course not. They're going to protect their investment. You know, they're going to put it behind glass with some guard dogs and laser motion detectors and all that kind of stuff. They're going to protect their investment. They're going to do all the little things. They've already done the hard thing. They've already given up $100 million. They're going to do the easy things to protect that, to make it last. And see, the same is true for our salvation. God has already given up his son for you. The value that he has placed on you being saved is the life of the Son of God. 
Will he not then do all the easier things to just make it last? Of course he will. Paul goes on in verse 33 to 34. He says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Look, we as humans, we want to earn what we get. right? We want to step up and do the work. Uh, But when it comes to our salvation, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our need to be saved. That $100 million painting can't protect itself. It offers nothing for that except its need to be protected. The only time we're mentioned in this verse is when we are chosen by God, that we are justified by God, and that we are receiving intercession in front of God. All passive things. It doesn't mention anything about us having a part in it, contributing to it, except for needing it and getting it. Everything else is God's doing. If we're going to trust that we're saved, we have to remember who is doing the saving. It's not us. It's not on our own merit. It's completely based on what Jesus has already done. You've done nothing to save you. Jesus has done four things we see in this verse that seal your salvation. Two things complete in the past, already done. Two things current and ongoing. The first one we see is that he already died a human death, even though he never sinned. And so credit for that death is freely available to all us humans who have sinned. Already done. Two is that he has already risen to life. He is the first fruits of glory, blazing the trail, if you will, preparing the way for us, and we will follow in that. You know why we can trust that the resurrection will come? It's because it's already started. That he's the first fruit, and we're going to follow him in that. Two things, already done and complete, can't take them away. It's already solid. Now, there's two more things that are current, happening right now, right now and ongoing. One is that he is at the right hand of the Father. Someone asks you, where is Jesus right now? Well, he's at the right hand of the Father right now. That's where he's at. That spot is where a ruler would put his most trusted advisor, his most beloved son, the one he listens to and trusts, the one that speaks into his ear. No one speaks into the ear of the Father except the Son. And the Father is listening to no one except the Son. That's why he's right there. That is uh, where he's at. That is the truth of where he's at. And that's current right now and ongoing. That's number three. And the fourth thing, current and ongoing, is that he is not just sitting there on a throne. He's speaking to the judge on our behalf. That's what it means for him to intercede for us. That's why we pray in Jesus' name, because he's speaking to the Father for us. So he's done these four things to seal our salvation. And you guys, this promise from God is not based on our ability to follow a law or a rule book. You aren't good enough to ever get this law. You aren't good enough to work hard and achieve, I mean, this promise from God to have a solid salvation. And that's an amazing, great thing. Because have you met you? Right? I've met me. It's not good. Right? I look in the mirror every morning and go, haven't we outsourced this yet? This guy's still in charge? A promise from God that is based on me is bad news. 
a promise from God based on what God has already done, despite me, and then he just calls me into it. Now, that is good news. That is good news. You see, the father will not discount the death of his son. Would you? Jesus will not stop actively interceding for you with the father. Satan himself cannot out-argue God and bring up any charge against you that the death of his son has not completely paid for already. And of course, no human can cancel your salvation no matter what you've done. Our place in God's family is secure, assured, guaranteed, already here because of what he has done, not because we follow the rules. So the, next, the question that comes to my mind when I think about this, and I think it's the next question that Paul addresses, is that uh, if that is so, why doesn't it feel like that? Why does it still feel like we're under his judgment sometimes? He says this in verse 35 and 36. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Isn't that how life feels sometimes? It's just suffer, 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 die. That's how it goes. And we might say, you know what, okay, God, we can get the idea that you love us no matter what, and nothing can separate us from that, you say, but why doesn't it feel like it? Why does it feel like we're living under judgment instead of under your love? If no one can separate us from your love, what's with all this hardship? Isn't that proof that we are separated somehow? That your love might be happening up there, but it doesn't have an effect on us. You might be doing your thing up there, speaking to the Father, but it, it, it just can't reach us down here. And the next verse, verse 37, you have to go on to. You can't stop at 36. You've got to keep going. It says to that way of thinking, it says stop. Don't think that way. If you're thinking that way, your mind is not working right. Your mind is being governed by the flesh in that moment instead of governed by the Spirit. You have your mind set on the things of the flesh, not the things of the Spirit. You're thinking about the little picture. You're forgetting the big picture. Everything else we talked about in Romans 8. It says don't think that way. Paul says it like this. It says no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. In all these things. Not despite, not afterward, not through, not once they're over, but in, right in the middle. So how are we more than conquerors when we are right in the middle of these absolutely terrible parts of life? Because I don't feel like a conqueror. I feel like I've been conquered a lot of the times. John Piper, another pastor, he explains it like this. He says, To conquer something means to destroy it. Man, I want to conquer some stuff. I want to destroy some stuff. Wouldn't it be better if all the bad things we could just destroy and get rid of? You know, I think about my life and some things, I just want to conquer them. I want them gone. It would be better. You know, I think about my own sin in my life, that man, I wish I could just destroy it and conquer it and it would be gone. Wouldn't it be so much better? Or I think about terrible things that happen in the world. Can't we just like go destroy that thing and the world would be better. Let's just go conquer it. Man, I want to do that sometimes. But he goes on. He says, To conquer something means to destroy it. To be more than a conqueror means you make it serve your purposes. You make them a traitor to the other side. They actually come to your side. Start fighting for you. Working for your good. They're on your side. 
you got to remember in verse 27 last week, we talked about how God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even the terrible things, even the worst things come to fight on our side. They are traitors to the other side. And not only can they not separate us from Christ, they can't even suggest that we are separated from Christ, and they actually work on our side to bring us closer to Christ for the good of those who love God. And we talked a lot about that last week. Now, if you weren't here last week, go watch it on our website. It's a really good message. And I think we talk about that sometimes, about how God works all things together for the good of those who love us. And we kind of think it sounds very noble, uh, and it sounds very encouraging and uplifting, and like, you know, everything's going to be okay. Let's put on a happy face, you know. It's going to be all right. It's going to work out. But I think that it's a better approach to be very realistic about it. I want us to be very realistic. You know, this is not just a feel-good message. We're not just a feel-good church. This is a real-life message. We're a real-life church. We preach a real-life gospel. We have a real-life God. And so we have to approach reality with verses like this. Let's talk about reality. Uh, I don't know if you watch the news, uh, but I have heard that a week, not yesterday, Saturday, but a week before that on Saturday, there were 17 missionaries that were kidnapped in Haiti. And today's day eight, and they're still there. And they were actually in the northeast corner of the capital city, Port-au-Prince. And they were serving at an orphanage there, trying to tell these children that have no father and mother that they do have a father in heaven, and he's better than any father they could want on earth. And as they came out of the orphanage, these men surrounded them in their transportation and took them all hostage, 17 of them. Some of them were families with like little, like baby kids, little kids. And now they're asking for a million dollars ransom for each one of them. And they're sitting there. You're sitting here. That's happening right now. And I got to ask, how are they more than conquerors? Right now, how are they more than conquerors? Right? What if it was me and my kids? Right before COVID hit, two weeks before COVID really took, you know, front stage, we were in Haiti with a team from this church. And we drove right through Port-au-Prince. It could have absolutely been us. So what if it was me, my family, my kids? What would I say to my wife while they're dragging us away? Now that I've studied Romans 8. Or if I could speak to those 17 people somehow, what would I want to tell them right now? Because I think that's the things we have to think about. This whole week I was preparing for this, reading Romans 8, and then this is on the news in front of my face. How does Romans 8 speak to that? How are we more than conquerors when that happens? Because we sit here in relative comfort and relative safety, but you never know what's coming. Who knows what's coming for the American church in 10 years from now? We cannot expect a sinful world to be hospitable to us forever. So when we read things like Romans 8, we can't read them in theory only. We have to read them in preparation because you never know what is coming. We don't come here to church to learn about Christianity. We come to be trained as disciples of Christ that are going to follow in his footsteps. And so what would I say? What would I say to my wife if they have us, are dragging us away? What would I whisper? What would I want her to think about when that's going on? And I don't think there's any perfect words you could say, but I think I would want her to think about Christ and what he went through. And I would want her to think about 
If we get hungry or thirsty, they don't feed us. They don't give us anything to drink. I want her to think about when Jesus was on the cross and he asked for something to drink and they only gave him vinegar. And I want her to think about when they took Jesus away and they would beat him and they would strike him. And I want her to think of that anytime they would beat and strike us, that they're treating us like Christ. And I want her to remember that when they were crucifying him, they stripped his clothes off too. So if that happens to her, to think of him because that happened to him and she's being treated like the king of the universe in that moment, that he knows exactly what that's like. And if something happens to our kids, I want her to remember that God lost his son into the hands of sinners too, but he didn't let the pain and the fear and the loneliness that his boy went through in that moment be the last word on that subject. And I want her to know that I would see her again Absolutely, assuredly, nothing can stop that. I will see her again. I trust that. Please trust that. And I would want her to know that it's okay to be afraid in that moment. Because even Jesus was afraid when he was going to the cross. So afraid he sweat drips of blood, it said. And I want her to know it'd be okay to be sad if something bad happens. Because even Jesus was sad when his friend Lazarus died. Even though he knew the outcome was going to be okay. And I tell her to pray for the people that are persecuting her, because that's what Jesus did when he was on the cross. The whole time they killed him, he was praying for those people. And I'd want to remember to, I want her to remember that even Paul was a murderer and God took Paul and led the church forward. And maybe one of these Haitian men will finally lead the Haitian people to the feet of Christ. Finally. He'll be a Haitian Paul. And I want her to trust God's love so much that she can't be separated from it at all, that she would trust his will in that terrible moment much more than she'd trust her own will because that's what Jesus did when he was on the cross. That's what I want her to think about. And I think that if those 17 brothers and sisters of ours that are there right now while we're here, if they can remember that they're being treated like Christ right now, then maybe they can think about how they are more than conquerors. They are more than conquerors right now as they're being treated like the king of the universe. Jesus was persecuted. Paul was persecuted. He went through a lot of the same stuff when he was on the mission field. So they're in a terrible position, but they're in very good company with people like Paul, with people like Christ. And Paul was so sure of how inseparable he was from the love of Christ. He ends chapter 8 like this. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither heights nor depths nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God That is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God's love when we are in Christ Jesus. No power, no person, no circumstance. And not only can it not separate us, it can't even suggest that we're separated. And not only that, but it works for our good to make us more like Christ, closer to him. And so we get to the end of Romans 8, and we must ask the same question that we started today with, which was, what then shall you say in response to these things? We hear all this, and then we must respond.
What is our response? Because the thing to fear is not all these terrible things that Paul lists, you know, famine, the sword, persecution, nakedness. The thing to fear is not that. The thing to fear is life without Christ. Some of us in the room, we're right on that cusp of always wondering, am I in? Am I in? Am I in? Am I in? Listen to Romans 8. Listen to what God says. Stop doubting your salvation. Never doubt it again because you're doubting the endurance of God's love in that moment. If you are in, if you trust in Christ and his spirit is alive in you, then trust what he says. Never doubt your salvation again. Never fear the hardships of life again. Be convinced like Paul. Have your mind set, governed by the things of the spirit. Rest assured, your destination is set. God's promise is trustworthy. But if you are not in Christ, and if his spirit is not living in you, then you should fear those hardships in life. Because they are coming. And if you are not in Christ, they do you no good. They are just meaningless pain. And maybe today is the day God calls you. Maybe part of his plan to call you was that you would come here today, I would say all this, and then he would say to you, I'm calling you. This message was for you. Today's the day. I have called you. I am making you my child. I am sending my spirit to live in you, and you will know from now on, no matter what, you are mine. And maybe today's the day that he planned. On God's calendar, today says, save this person. Call them. Because it's not based on what you do. That's bad news. But we have good news. It's not based on you. The good news is based on what he's already done, what he's still doing right now. And then he's just calling you into it. So what I want to do is, if you are a Christian, let's pray. I want you to pray right now. Bow your head and pray for the people around us. One, that we would not doubt his love. And two, that the people around us that might not know that uh, are being called for the first time today, that they would listen to that call. They would hear the call. Uh, because their hardship is coming. Pray for the person next to you. Their hardship is coming. And we pray that it's not meaningless pain, but that, God, you call these people into your family. And that they would hear that call clearly. And if that's you in this room, if you're hearing his call on your life to be his child from now on, no matter what, because of what he's done, if today is the day he's calling you, we want to walk with you in that so we can encourage you and celebrate with you and praise God with you. And if today's the day, I want you just to raise your hand right now so we can know, so we can help you on the next step, so we can encourage you and walk with you as you praise God. Raise your hand right now. If today's the day God is calling you, if you hear his voice, if you feel him in your heart stirring it up, saying, come to me, you are my child now. Okay, no one in this service. That's okay. Let me join you in prayer. Uh, Jesus, even though no one heard your call in this service, we pray for the next service. If someone's on their way right now, to the next service, to hear you, to hear about your good news. 
I pray that your sons and daughters in this room would live with so much trust in you that the daily concerns for life lack any ability to control their lives because of the power of your promise. And Holy Spirit, we ask, please continue to transform us daily. No matter what it takes, we trust you. No matter what it takes makes us more like your son so we can praise you. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Haiti right now. And they're just 17, but there's many more than them around the world. But we pray for these ones specifically, that you'd be with them, you'd encourage them, you'd help them know they are more than conquerors, that you are with them right now. We pray for the kidnappers, that you would change their hearts, and that they would help be part of your kingdom instead of against your kingdom. We pray the impossible, God, because you can do the impossible. Nothing's impossible with you. So we ask for these kidnappers to be changed so that we can praise your name because of it. Uh, We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.